Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. So if you're ready, sir, let's let's get underway. Ready to go. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Gregory Zuckerman. He's a journalist at the Wall Street Journal. He's written several fantastic books. Uh, his most recent one is... The Man Who Solved the Market, which is about Jim Simons and Renaissance. We'll be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Greg. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I absolutely love the book. Uh, why is Jim Simons and Renaissance, why is it important? Why is it a, why is it a worthwhile topic of, of study and writing about? So I guess first and foremost, the reason I wrote it are these ridiculous returns. Uh, 66% a year since 1988 in the key fund. It's called the Medallion Fund. Um it charges a lot of fees. So after fees, the returns aren't nearly as good. They're only 39% a year since uh, 1988. Ridiculous. Only one down year in, in 1989. So first and foremost, those crazy returns. But it's also the more I started you know, talking to people and doing research, I realized that he's a pioneer. He's the one guy who really set the standard when it comes to quantitative investing, which is where everything's going today, shifting from human uh, decision-making to uh, – statistical models and using computers but he's also really in some ways a pioneer when it comes to just in general building algorithms and predictive algorithms the kind of stuff that we see every day when it comes to uh you know facebook and netflix and amazon he was doing this in the 80s 1980s so one can learn about um, technology also from the book and, and also management in some ways he manages in a very different way and recruits and i i personally learned a lot from how he deals with people. So there were a lot of reasons uh, I, I learned from the book and the research. I'm sort of jumping all over the place here, but that, that is one of the things that I picked up from the book. Even though he's this, he's a, he's a world-class, maybe generational mathematician, it felt like, or I understood from the book, that really what he had done was he had hired really well and kind of let those guys do their thing. Is that, is, how, much of, how much of what Renaissance does is Jim Simons and how much of it is the, the employees? So that was one of the things that surprised me. I figured once I dug into the firm and finally got people to talk who shouldn't be talking, uh, that I'd find all these kinds of algorithms that that Simons came up with. And it turns out that he played an important role on the side on that side, looking for signals, as they call them, phenomena in the market that are underappreciated uh, by others or overlooked by others. But just as important, important was his management skill. And when he talked to people there, or he used to work there, one used the phrase that, you know, Simon's is genius is managing genius. And I wouldn't have expected that. And that to me is part of the reason why the returns are so crazy. And what makes him unique is that he can do that side, the quantitative side. He's a mathematician. We can talk about that. He's really one of the greatest mathematicians, especially as a, as a geometer over the past 50, 100 years. So he, he could do that side, but he also is really good and interacting with people, which is kind of rare for right. a mathematician. You know, the joke about mathematician is in 
outgoing mathematician is one who stares at your feet, your <laughs> shoes, right. as opposed to his own. Um, but he's not like that. He uh, is a fun guy to hang out with. I spent over 10 hours with him. As long as you can handle the smoke in your, in, in your yeah. face from his chain-smoking Merit cigarettes. Um, he's an interesting guy. He's a fun guy. He drinks. Uh, he's funny. So, And he knows what, what ticks. He knows how to motivate people. So it's rare to find somebody who can do both both sides, and that's part of the explanation, I would argue, that why the returns are so good and why they're a unique firm. He doesn't run things day-to-day anymore, but he, for many years he did. It's striking that he was he was 40 or in his 40s by the time the it, it even launched, and it was not immediately successful. He had this quite successful career, though, before then as a mathematician, as a code breaker, but he seemed kind of restless looking to do something else. Yeah, that was another of the surprises that um, given these returns, you would have thought, okay, they figured it out around 1990s when they turned the corner, I would argue, and they shifted to short-term trading from a longer-term term orientation. And then you look at the turns and, okay, they're off to the races and everything's easy. But uh, there were so many obstacles uh, along the way, so much drama behind the scenes. And that's what I kind of learned from it was surprised by. And it's also in some ways, I think, maybe reassuring for others, be it investors or people in, in general in life, that there, you got to deal with all kinds of setbacks. And quite frankly, there was a lot of good luck involved too, where he could have gone, it could have gone either way a few times. Uh, he almost pulled the plug on their effort to figure out equities. He gave his guys six more months, and he's really an optimistic, patient individual. And for him to almost pull the plug says something. And so it could have gone either way. And there was a glitch that we're, now we really are jumping all over the place. But a, a, as you suggest, um, it, it, there were many more setbacks and, and obstacles that, that I was surprised to, to, to learn about. I think I'm not sure when Renaissance sort of first got media attention, but I don't, I, it was in the last 10 or 15 years, it feels like to me. And then the moment that they arrived, everybody was scrambling. I think that the, their return, you could see a, re, a scan of their return sheet that got shared around. I remember that maybe 10 years ago. And the huh. returns were absolutely ridiculous on that return sheet. I just, I just, uh, how much of that is uh, uh, sort of a, a fundamental understanding of the market and how much of it is sort of more of a code-breaking uh, you know, signal detection. Are they, do they have some fundamental insight that, that that eludes the rest of us? So to your first point, yeah, they, they've always been sort of below the radar screen. The first piece that came out about them was in 2000 in Institutional Investor Magazine. And there have been, been things here and there, but it's always been this kind of mystery. How do they do it? And wow, these returns are crazy. And I kind of shared that fascination, which is, why I did this book, I was just curious how, how they do it and um, how it happened, how they developed this thing. So um, in, in, in I would argue, and I write about it in the book, that they do have a different understanding, a whole different approach in so many different ways. You know, people think about quants. Quants are this big kind of bucket, and they lump everybody in. Right. And there's so many different ways of doing it. And what they do is very different, very distinct from other quants even, let alone other kind of traditional fundamental investors in that they're not doing what AQR does. They're not, right. they're not factor investors. They're not high-frequency investors. They get confused often with high-frequency. They're medium-term um, investors. Uh, two days is, is, is my understanding of the average holding period. They'll go shorter. They'll go longer. They look sometimes like high-frequency because they'll 
trade rapidly, very fat quickly. And but that's more to put on positions or take off positions. So they get confused often with high frequency guy, but they're they're medium frequency, and they'll go moments to to months is the way they describe it uh, internally. And they do have a very different understanding in in a lot of ways. Um, they don't believe you can predict individual stocks. So what they'll do is do groups of stocks versus groups of stocks. So they generally speaking hold about 5,000 equities long, about 5,000 short. And what they're betting on are short-term patterns in the market between these groups. Um, not all 5,000 versus 5,000, but relationships among them. And it's relationships between a group of stocks and another group of stocks, uh, relationships between a group of stocks and an, an index and a factor. Um, it's all these relationships which are quite complicated. It's, it's more of a Internally, they describe it as sort of an engineering challenge in some ways, putting all the system together. And they believe that um, there are more factors, as, as we call them, affecting equities and investments in general than we all understand. And, you know, we all kind of focus on earnings and revenue and all those kind of basic um, criteria and ratios, et cetera. And they think there's just many, there are many more. Sometimes they affect things uh, more, much more. There's no like hidden secret that and people kind of some people like on Amazon well I, I didn't get the formula uh, <laughs> I, I read the book but I, I didn't get the formula and that's not what I set out to do and there isn't such a thing and they, they do have some things that are consistent winners but they may not work tomorrow and things are evolving and there's an urgency even there today and it, it's about how they develop and I, and I write about how they recruit and how um, they approach things they hide their signals there are a lot of tricks that I do write about but there's not like some one secret formula like Coca-Cola kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I, I, the, what I took away is that there's probably lots and lots of smart guys trying to independently develop lots of different ideas and they to, they don't really need to understand why something works if it's sort of statistically robust the way that they measure it. Is that is that a fair sort of description? Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, yes. And that is one way that they distinguish themselves. Other firms like a, a Two Sigma, hedge funds, they need to understand, most firms need to understand why they're investing. And partly it's because they have outside LPs, they have outside investors. And you kind of have to give them a little sense of why you're doing what you're doing. In some ways, Simon has a structural advantage, or he always has in terms of this, this medallion fund, in that he's kicked all his outside investors out. So he doesn't need to explain anything, and he can trade on these non-intuitive signals, as they call them. In other words, phenomenon that keep repeating, but they have no clue why. And another investor, like a Clefasos or somebody, might notice the same ones, but they've got outside investors. You can't just put money on, on trades that you don't understand why they're working, but Simons and his colleagues can. Now, to be fair, they're not putting a lot on those non-intuitive signals, and they will try to figure out why they're working. So they're not not curious about it but yeah they have a little more freedom and again these are small edges but they all add up and that's what i would argue they have a series of advantages and different approaches uh, relative to other even big investors and small ones for sure and they all add up and each one in themselves is maybe just interesting and not won't blow you away but i think when you add them all up uh they add up to the greatest money-making firm finances modern finance has ever seen you, you listed out three sort of the three signals that they have and they were sensible signals which i'm guessing is like the ones that everybody knows about momentum value whatever or something else 
surprising trades with strong statistics. And then the third one, which I think is the most interesting and probably everybody knows the least about including them, is the bizarre signals. Do you, do you have any sense what the bizarre signals are? None that come to mind and none that are sort of uh, tried and true that will always work. And they do change. And then, quite frankly, I've raised the question with people internally who work there right now, can the, can the results continue? And also, the market is changing itself as more investors do passive uh, investing, index investing. See, a lot of, taking a step back, a lot of the reason why they do so well is they take advantage of the mistakes of others, be it small investors or, or, or larger investors. And um, so they do well in panics. They do well when the market's blow, blowing up, partly because they have mapped out these um, these turns the market throughout for, for hundreds of years and they have better data than everybody and it's cleaner than everybody and they've emphasized the data collection before everybody else in some ways they were the first data scientists um so um, they in some ways take advantage of the small and also kind of larger investors but fundamental investors and the, all the behavioral economics stuff that we all are familiar with these greed and, and fear and the common mistakes we all make they take advantage but what happens as investors shift to more passive investing I've raised that question. Has the market uh, fundamentally changed? And can you continue to do this well if you don't have dentists uh, to take advantage of on the other side of you? And they've, the people I've talked to internally who work there right now acknowledge the challenge. It's part of why they still have this urgency, this pressure that they feel every day. But their counter to me is that the market isn't changing overnight, and it hasn't changed overnight. It's slowly changing. There still are enough of uh, these phenomena, re recurring phenomena, that they can take advantage of. So um, I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical whether it can continue, but they've, they've done well this year as well. So, so far, you know, the proof's in the pudding. They've, they've continued to do so. It's interesting that I, I had no idea that dentists had so much money that they could, they could extract that amount from them uh, every year. But it's, it's interesting that they, they sort of, they're quantitative, which means they're anti-behavioral error but as you point out in the book, even Jim Simons himself is not immune to making behavioral errors or attempting to at least. So that's one thing that, that jumped out at me. And I thought really fascinating and ironic. And I talked to him about that. He didn't necessarily appreciate the irony uh, <laughs> like I did or, or like you did. So uh, what, what we're referring to is that here he is, Jim Simons, the uh, premier preeminent quant, um, math uh, acclaimed mathematician. He's the person we all kind of look up to in, in, in the quant world set the standard and he's made $23 billion being a quant by, by handing the decision-making over to computers. And he tried the, another approach earlier in his life and I talk about it and it left him sick to his stomach literally um, and the ups and downs just got to him. So he's made all this money, $23 billion as a quant. And then late last year, he's on vacation with his wife uh, in Beverly Hills and if people recall, late 2018, the market was collapsing. And like everybody else, like me, like others, he starts panicking. And he, you would think he'd be the last guy to be panicking. If, if Jim Thomas is panicking, then, then who isn't panicking? And I mean, I mean, it's exaggerated panicking, but he got concerned. And he calls up the head of his family office, hey, um, shouldn't, we, buy, should, shouldn't <laughs> we, we be buying some protection here? Which I said to him, Jim, you're 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 getting thrown by the market. You're getting affected by the market collapsing. I, I thought you're all you're all about handing decisions over the computers. And in the end, they didn't do anything. But it was mostly the 
head of his family office who said, well, Jim, let's wait a few days and see what happens. And, but to me, it just um, underscores how hard it is to be a quant. Even the preeminent quant has a tough time. And I have other examples throughout the book where colleagues said, Jim, stop messing with the, the models. Well, he, did, he, did it in, he did it in the firm earlier on. There was a, the, for whatever, either the market was crashing or the, the models seemed to be malfunctioning. And he, he, he had them take some of the exposure off or take down the exposure. That's true. And also in 2007, when things were uh, collapsing for quants, he pulled back and people internally were pretty upset at him. They said, hey, we've got these great opportunities here. We should be adding exposure and not reducing it. Uh, so he's got a little bit of old school trader in him, despite him being Jim Simons. He's always kept these a few traders, humans around for times of crisis. Others kind of have scoffed and Jim, why are you wasting our money hiring these guys? But we're fine with the computer models. Um, so let me be clear that 99% of the time he he doesn't override the models and he prides himself on, uh, on that and believes it's really important as part of their success and other firms do play with it and they don't. So I want to be clear, but yes, yeah, you suggest hard times when in, when market's collapsing, uh, he'll step in. It's usually to, to pull back exposure and he does have these instincts that even he has to fight um, to mess with the models. And early on when they created an early a version of machine learning, which was their system was their trading system was buying um, and selling w without anybody knowing what the, why they were doing it, and it made Simon's really uncomfortable. He's like, <laughs> "This is a black box." It's just like sort of, I would would be concerned about. So that surprised me in my research that he's did it hurt uh, his returns? Uh, it's hard it, to it's hard to know. Did it save so. the firm? Did it hurt the returns? Did it have any were, impact at all? No, there were times I think it did save the firm. And it didn't, hurt. I mean, it may have hurt the returns, but you know, the returns were, were quite good either way. So it didn't hurt him that much. Yeah. Uh, but people internally give him credit for that's that other side of him. So he was really good at knowing his prime brokers and knowing who he should be dealing with, who he shouldn't, and hearing rumors and getting out of firms like Bear Stearns. And earlier, I read about another example. So um, the lesson there is maybe it's important, and I, I'm a huge believer in turning decisions over to, to models and computers and being careful uh, about intuition and judgment, but there are times, maybe it's just uh, in times of crisis, and maybe the lesson is you pull back and you be more conservative, because the way they distinguish themselves from people like LTCM is that they are not... Um, they believe that their models are not foolproof. And right. while they've done really well with them, they're also somewhat humble about their own work and, and nervous about the future. It's part of the reason why they come in every day with an urgency that they're still trying to figure it out. So uh, they're an interesting mix. They're quants, but they've got uh, other uh, instincts as well that they deal with. Some intellectual humility maybe keeps you alive a little bit longer. I think so. I think so. In, in, in strong contrast to LTCM, which seemed to be they were the smartest guys in the room, famously. Right. So LTCM, um, they, the Simons and his colleagues tried to learn some lessons and understand what happened and why, you know, whether it could happen to them. And yeah, one of their lessons is you don't double down when things are going against you necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean you override your models, but maybe you you reduce exposure. It's okay to live to fight another battle. You posed some great questions at the start of the book. Um, and I'm interested to, to know your answers. What does it say about the markets that mathematicians and scientists do a better job than veteran value investors or veteran investors? 
Well, taking a step back, there's a paradox behind this whole my whole book, which kind of drives it. And I was only I only was conscious of it sort of halfway through my research that it shouldn't have been these guys who had these crazy returns because they're mathematicians, they're scientists, they're not people that care about investing and care about the markets. Most of the time, they get hired to join the firm because they're looking for an intellectual challenge. Once they get there, they do fall in love with the money, but they're not there to get rich. They're like, they are human. So, you know, you see the cars going from Mazdas or, or whatever, Hondas to Porsches. You could see that in a, in a parking lot, but um, it shouldn't have been, been these guys. It should have been somebody who cares about investing, someone who got an MBA, someone who got an CFA, someone like myself who I've always been fascinated by investing in investors. I was reading Barron's and Wall Street Journal as a little kid and all that. Those guys had no – it was beneath them almost. They're scientists, and they didn't want to waste their time. Uh, so it shouldn't have been those individuals. So, so the question is why? What, what do we all have – what are we doing wrong? Um, and part of it I do think is uh, the reliance we have on, on judgment. And uh, I, I'm a big believer now in, in, as I said earlier, turning decisions over um, to models. And it's not just you know when it comes to investing. If you think about the most important decisions today – um, by the Fed, by in White House, etc. A lot of it is sort of still using judgment and instinct, whereas the most successful companies are Tencent and Amazon and, and, and Netflix, where they've got these dynamic models that they turn the decisions over to. And that's one of the lessons for me, not just as an investor, but as, as a human. It's not to say that you can't have some sort of combination of the two. It's not to say that there aren't corners of the market where there are uh, inefficiencies and you can still as a human take advantage but they're few and far between and that also speaks to another theme as you you would ask me you know what lessons to me the lesson there is that the market is a lot more efficient than I might have thought you, you might think okay these guys have these crazy returns it proves the market is inefficient and and I, I get that and Simons thinks the market is inefficient if you speak to him but but I would argue that in some ways their success proves how efficient the market is in that they only get it right a bit more than 50% of the time. And they're short-term traders. They're not long-term traders. And they've failed as, as long-term traders. It didn't really work, and they had to shift gears. And if these guys, who are the best and the brightest, the smartest scientists and mathematicians they recruit from all over the world, they only get it right a bit more than 50% of the time. And they use a lot of leverage, and that helps them. And they cap their fund, which is really important. And there's a, a lesson there, too. Some people say to me, well, Greg, you can't compare Simons to Warren Buffett. Buffett's managing a company that's you know, $300, $400 billion, Or you can't compare him to other kind of investors managing tens of billions, whereas this medallion fund, the key fund, is at $10 billion. And I would counter by saying no one forced Warren Buffett to get so big. Or I wrote this earlier book about uh, John Paulson. It's called The Greatest Trade Ever. And he pulled off the greatest trade in human history and in modern financial history where he made $20 billion over two years anticipating the financial meltdown. And I give him a ton of credit for this trade. But then afterwards, he <laughs> saw his AUM soar. He got up to like close to $40 billion and his returns plummeted because he thought he'd be the exception. And he got away from the, how he invests. There are all kinds of reasons why. But that's another kind of lesson there. And investors – never uh, subscribe to that. The fact that you've got to keep your, your, your AUM down to a, to a level where you could actually outperform the market. And there are smaller investors that are able to beat the market. But when, time and time again, I see it. I've been at the journal 23 years. You see um, big investors 
who believe, well, I'm going to be the exception. I'm going to be the one who's got the hedge fund and the mutual fund that keeps taking in money and out, outperforms. And it doesn't work. And Simon somehow had that instinct. And he realized that they couldn't get too big unless they were going to give up returns. They didn't want to do that. It's slightly off topic, but Paulson's tra- uh, the, the Paulson book was interesting because he started off as a merger arbitrager. And then he had a trade that was a little bit sort of out of the ordinary for him. And then he seemed to turn into a global macro guy with a big gold fund and various other things. And so I, I don't know how successful he was as a, as a merger arbitrager and then subsequently, but he got that trade right. Maybe that's all you need. You just need your one. You need the greatest trade ever. True. true. See, I would argue people criticize Paulson and they say, well, he was a one hit wonder. And yeah, Zuckerman, you wrote about that one hit. I don't see it that way. I see him. He was a very successful investor. Not very successful. But he was a singles hitter. He was a successful merger arb. But he had a really interesting approach, and it was one that worked. And he looked for asymmetrical trades, trades with limited downside and huge upside. And he did it with mergers. He would get into merger deals and that were announced that had a potential third party to come in. So worst comes to worst, it was announced deals probably going to go through, but the upside is. Is, is great if another party came in right. and he applied that same strategy to the mortgage trade because he was buying credit default swaps and to me i don't give him that much credit for being bearish on housing as, as i'm sure you recall there were a lot of people bearish on housing right. what i do give him a lot of credit for is figuring out how to express this trade better than almost everybody and there are all kinds of really sophisticated mortgage guys who didn't put on this trade didn't really figure out how to use credit default swaps in the right way he and his colleagues Paolo Pellegrini did, and it was, but it was the same strategy, looking for an asymmetrical trade. Worst comes to worst, you're paying out credit fault swaps, and there's a, you would lose money, but not a, a ton, and the upside was remarkable. And then, so he does this remarkable trade and makes $20 billion, and he got away from his strategy. He started doing, like you said, he became a global macro guy. He bet on gold. I mean, what's gold worth? It's hard to tell, and it's got upside, but it's got downside. He got into bank stocks. He got into pharmas, and he got away from how he always invested. So it wasn't so much that it was a one-hit wonder and um, he got lucky. I would argue that he he really veered away from how he always invested, and there's a lesson there too. And, and listen, everybody's the hubris is is not something that uh, is something that many investors fall into that that trap. And he he clearly did. He thought he could be the one who could manage a fund at forty billion hedge fund at forty billion dollars and. I can figure out um, pharma and banking and all this other kind of stuff. And it's a reminder not to get too big. It's a reminder to stick to to what got you there. I got to say, I just I slightly disagree with you that he got the asymmetric trade wrong because for Paulson personally, that gold fund was an asymmetric trade on gold. He had virtually no downside, but his upside was extraordinary personally if he got the carry on them. As a manager. Yeah, you're right. I, 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 I... it's sad to me, right? A lot of these guys, you could say all kinds of people. You could say AQR is the best investors out there today because they're a great marketing shop. The returns aren't great. Oxif, all kinds of firms I could go on and on. Now I'm, you, you're bringing out the, the JV. You're going to raise Cliff's ire. Just, I don't want to yeah. get a nasty tweet from Cliff. Yeah, listen, he's a big boy. He can, what he can't, he's very sensitive. It's weird. These billionaires are so sensitive. I've, I've seen it in my own work. Um, the, the, they're human. They're human, I guess. But you would think at that point, you've done great. I, I, it's not a knock on him. He's built a great um, empire, um, but uh, the returns aren't nearly as good as, as many others. And um, you know, it's a different approach. Other people build successful 
uh, firms. But you were saying that as a gold fund, as a, as a manager, he's done well, I guess. But I look at it sort of on, on returns and how, what he's doing for his investors, John Paulson, I'm, I'm talking about in particular. And ultimately, early on, he was very early in gold and he got that run up. But uh, ultimately, it, it didn't help. And he got the, and the reason was wrong. He expected inflation. He thought that money supply right. expansion would lead to inflation. So, he, yeah, he was right that gold started soaring and he made a fortune early on. But it was, it was not for the reason uh, he had expected. One of the interesting themes in the book, and it's one that I have I, I have written about too, is the this idea that the, uh, the the algorithm represents a ceiling for performance rather than a floor, and it's a ceiling from which you detract rather than alg- uh, rather than a floor to which you add. So there's some some studies that have been around since the 70s, and Paul G. Meal is the grandfather of this stuff, and the 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 idea is expressed. It's always expressed this way that a simple algorithm beats the best expert, including when the best expert has access to the simple algorithm. And I'll tell you the reason why. It's this, they call it the broken leg theory. So you have some simple algorithm about why John goes to the movie theater on a Friday afternoon, and it might include the type of movie. So if he likes an action movie, he's probably going to go. If it's romance, he won't go. Maybe it's raining means he won't go, something like that. And then you learn one day he's got this broken leg. And your model naturally doesn't include that information. Are you allowed to make an adjustment mm. for the fact that he has that uh, broken leg? And the answer is no. And the reason why is that we make we exercise our discretion too often. We want to override the models all the time. Mm. Mm. So I found it really kind of fascinating that Simons was he he kind of did override the model. You say most of the time he didn't, but there were these like pivotal moments where he kind of gave yes. in. Yes, but let's also remember that the bulk uh, of the signals are developed by his colleagues, and they are much less comfortable overriding models. And they would argue, and I think you suggest as much in, in terms of your case, they would argue that, uh, yes, we're going to get it wrong. Because so I've said to them, it's a dumb, basic question, but you know, you guys can't figure out frauds. You can't. You're relying on. You're, you're going to be surprised. Your models are going to be surprised by right. all sorts of things. Shouldn't you maybe include some sort of human elements and quantum mental? And people try to do that. Um, and they say, yeah, we are going to miss out on those. The the you know MCI Worldcoms where there are frauds involved. Uh, but if you trade enough, you you will still do better with this approach, despite those those. Um, misgivings uh, one they, might they're have. They're trying to hold so many that the idiosyncratic risk of any given company yes. is is negligible, yes. and they're trying to capture yes. whatever signal or factor or whatever the big muscle movement is. Yes, a pattern that people that is persistent and uh, may not have an explanation to it, but there's got to be, and, and that's sort of part of their thesis that uh, we all, the average investor, is just not aware of. And even they are not aware of all the reasons why markets are moving and, and, and individual investments are moving, but you can still map them out and and it's, they're still potentially reliable, these repeating patterns. And like you said, um, they'll deal with that that kind of issue. I mean, part of it also is that whole thesis of they look at them, as, at least early on, as something of, as a, like a casino. So yeah, the casino is going to, some big whale is going to come in and, and they're going to lose on some big hands and Maybe somebody's counting cards, and the casino doesn't know it. it. Takes them a little while; they figure it out eventually. But they've lost a lot of money on those idiosyncratic tra- trades, as you suggest, or situations. But 
you trade enough, if you're the casino, you still do, do fine over time. And that's their thesis. Is there anybody who does anything comparable to, to, uh, to these guys? Because I think that every, every other firm is sort of, the quant firms are factor firms for the most part. AQR is a factor firm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Simons will do factors in addition to everything else. Uh, it's a good question. See, that's another thing. I, I would argue another one of the, their advantages, there's, there aren't as many people doing what they're doing as you would think. So there's um, Pete Muller, right. uh, his firm. You've got Two Sigma a little bit, D.E. Shaw a little bit, part of what they do. And we're talking, again, medium um, frequency, holding periods of a couple days, uh, similar types of approaches. So, so there are some smaller firms. Pete Muller maybe is the closest, and it's not a surprise because a lot, and I write about it in the book, a lot of the genesis of their equity strategies. They do bond futures and commodities and currencies, but equities are about 60% of the returns, more, more or less. And a lot of that comes from, the basis of that is from Morgan Stanley and this system they developed there. And um, they couldn't quite make it work. Part of it went over to Renaissance. For a while, they couldn't make it work. It took the two individuals or a few people from IBM. I write about it in the book, Bob Mercer and Peter Brown and some, some younger uh, junior type people to really turn the corner when it comes to equities. But a lot of it comes from Morgan Stanley in terms of pairs trading. I mean, it's not pairs trading. It's much, much more sophisticated than that. But if you dumb it down to some version of, of pairs right. trading, I guess it's, it's lots of different. It's not not like Coke versus Pepsi. But, you know, you read, you read the book. Um, but um, Pete Muller came from Morgan Stanley as well. And he used to run Morgan Stanley's uh, uh, Stadarb type uh, uh, approach. So it's not a surprise that Pete Muller is uh, one of the few people like them. And, and frankly, uh, he wouldn't talk to me about the, my book and my research. And I think part of it is there's sort of some similarities there. So Right. One of my favorite scenes in the book is uh, when they're playing poker. And I forget who the gentleman is, but when he gets a good hand, he sings the Battle Hymn of the Republic. That's his tell. Bob Mercer, yeah. Bob Mercer. Although... <laughs> but he was using it to set them up. Yeah. So... And he was playing against professional poker right. players. And the professional poker players are all excited. He figured out Bob Mercer's tell. And it turns out he was playing, or potentially was. It's not. It's hard to tell. It's the, uh, it's the yeah. most obvious tell. It's it's such a. It's you'd have to be nervous about that one. Yeah. So then you think psychologically, maybe he's doing it intentionally because it's obvious. Uh, they, they're super sharp uh, individuals. I was going to say guys, but there's some women as well, and a lot of poker players, and uh, even with each other, there's some element of p playing poker and. and uh, even talking to me, you have to be careful about what they're telling you and whether it's accurate and if they're leading you down the wrong path when it comes to my research. And I had to be conscious of, of that concern and double check and triple, tri triple check what people were telling me. And I was always a little bit, it made it, made it a, a challenging project because these people uh, think a different way and they didn't want their information to get out. And so if they're telling you something, sometimes they're confiding in you, but other times they're trying to confuse you. They're misleading you. So you said that this was the what, the most difficult project you'd worked on? Yeah, by far. I mean, I've been in the journal 23 years. I've This is the third adult book I've written. I've written two others uh, for young people with my two sons. But nothing compares to this just because, A, it's a secretive firm, probably the most secretive firm. So people were told not to talk to me. Other firms, people were told not to talk to me. I had meetings scheduled and canceled at the last second because someone from Renaissance heard about it and told the firm it's a rival and they still were told you can't talk to Greg. Um, and people have signed these 30 page non-disclosures even after they've left and asked to talk to me and it's quantitative finance. So um, 
it's it's difficult to put into a narrative. I wanted it to be a, a, a narrative that people wanted to read and was enjoyable for people. And I also wanted it to be something that mathematicians and, and, and quants could learn from. So I wanted there had to be enough there. It wasn't going to be all quanty and math and math all mathematics because then you bore the other types of readers. But vice versa, it can't be all about divorces and panic and and screaming matches because then the mathematicians might not appreciate that as much or, or people that just wanted to understand their approach. So I had to get people to talk and understand the math. And um, I'll tell you, uh, I'll read this might be funny for your, uh, your audience. Um, so Simons eventually became really quite, I'm looking for something, hopefully I can read this and find it. He became quite helpful in terms of, uh, he, he wouldn't tell me kind of secrets, but he was really great about telling me um, his approach to mathematics and um, uh, give me an understanding for how he, he, he got into the business. And even lately, in the last few years, his uh, approach um, to philanthropy and some of the interesting things I'm doing. I, I apologize here. Basically, no, you're fine. I, uh, he was, he, so he, he, I asked him to uh, define a term for me in um, geometry. It's called holonomy. And uh, I got to find it. Anyway, basically, he... Uh, I, I asked him to sort of dumb it down, and he said, "Oh yeah, sure, let me dumb it down for you." And it, <laughs> even dumbing it down, I it was like it. this. Uh, all right, so yeah, holonomy is the is the phrase. And, Impenetrable. Uh, it, it was it was so it was embarrassing because this is him. He's a great teacher, and he was explaining it to me. Was and he missing? Really, no, I think he. He thought you'd him, understand that. Yeah, or he thought he had dumbed it down. He can't do that much more it's than this. It's this very it's, long, jargony sentence that he gives you. Exactly, and um, it was a little embarrassing that I couldn't understand it, but uh, I've read it to other people subsequently, and apologies, I can send it to you. Um, he um, he thought he was dumbing it down, and I couldn't understand it, nor, nor could others. So um, uh, it showed kind of the level of challenge I was up against, trying to just understand some of these concepts and being able to... Um, write it for other people. Maybe, or maybe just other writers would have an easier job. For for me, it was hard. Can I ask you, when you've got a very secretive firm like uh, Renaissance, how do you go about verifying the returns? So um, for a long time, they had outside investors till about 2006. And then they kicked everybody else out. But until 2006, they had audited returns that they would send to their outside LPs. Why do they and share their outside returns now? Why do they share they their don't. returns now? Okay. Oh, they don't. So after that, I needed people on the inside. And uh, their employees, they've got money in the funds. They would have no reason to lie to themselves. They don't have outside uh, funds. You know, all the Ponzi's in the world have been outside investors. If, if it's just your own money, why would you lie about that? And frankly, no one's had an example of, of pulling money out or asking for money, employees, ex-employees, and then not being able to get the money. They, and you can see the, the wealth and where, where they're investing and where they're putting it. So um, the returns, so you could get the returns till around 2006 because they had to report them to their investors. Um, and again, they could have been lying to them. I mean, they were audited, they had accounting firms, but so did Bernie Madoff. But all the money was returned to investors in 2006. They were upset about getting their money back, these investors, but there was no, never an example of somebody wanting to get their money back and they couldn't and they kicked everybody out. So but they do still run outside money. Okay, so then they started running 
in different funds, Reef. not the medallion fund, Reef, exactly, and some other ones. So yeah, they have outside money and, and that's audited, all that kind of stuff, but that's not the, the flagship fund that we talk about, the medallion fund, but Reef and, and Riff and all those, they do pretty well too. They, they um, on a risk-adjusted basis, beat the market, but nothing like the medallion fund, which is the, the key one. I just wondered, and I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be sued by anybody. So this is pure speculation, but I always wondered if Medallion traded against Reef or something like that, if that was the way that it generated the returns. No, so the SEC was concerned about that too, right. and so we're early on Reef, and I write about it in the book. Early on, Reef uh, suffered some some real losses, and people were really upset, and they thought they're being taken advantage of in fr- front run by Medallion. But the SEC was there for two years after Madoff. Uh, SEC went in there, and look, that was among the things they looked at. And maybe they got hoodwinked, but I don't have any indication. People who've left who've not so happy with the firm have never suggested as much. <clears throat> Excuse me. The only thing people not thrilled with the firm point to are the tax, aggressive tax strategies they've, right. they've employed to convert short-term gains to long-term, which uh, may be legal, but clearly are aggressive and clearly have cost the American taxpayer. And you could argue that the returns are the returns, but their after-tax returns are probably better than they should be because of these measures. And they're probably going to have to pay a lot of that back and it may cost them. But again, those are sort of after-tax returns, not the 66% we talk about. I highlighted it when when I read it because I, I use some options sometimes too. And so when I saw that they were converting those into long-term, I, I, I immediately thought, oh, I didn't realize you could do that. I didn't realize yeah. merely holding it beyond the year. And of course you can't. And you, you dealt with that pretty quickly that on the next page yes uh and we'll see how much they pay people internally and people that are on the hook think they're going to lose or have to settle with the irs so while they did get a tax uh opinion that said what they were doing is it's complicated it's in the book and uh they have these basket strategies where technically they don't own the trades and they have a bank do it for them and they get the returns in exchange I mean, it's clever by a half, but at the end of the day, they're uh, being quite aggressive and the taxpayer is suffering as a result. So I do think that it's going to come back to haunt them, but it won't affect their returns. It'll affect their their take home uh, after tax. Uh, Look, I absolutely love the book. Uh, Thoroughly recommend everybody go and take a look at it. It's uh, The Man Who Solved the Market. Final takeaways for you. What, what you, you think that you should? Uh, we should be applying algorithms in in every aspect of our life. To the extent we can, um, there's an argument that you know, quantum mental approach combining the two is more effective. I subscribe to that, but um, all things being equal, turning decisions over to systems as opposed to relying on stories and narratives, it's just dangerous when you. Eat, I've seen it over my career, just getting caught up in stories. And you see Theranos and WeWork and Uber and all kinds of examples where we as investors aren't as good judging executives as we think we are and judging stories. But I do have to say that there are niches in the market where the fundamental investors still can outperform. And one of the things that was crazy to me is when you go out to talk to like a Sandor Strauss, who was one of the key individuals early in, the, in my book and at Renaissance or even Simons, you would think that in their, with their personal money, it would be all allocated to quantitative managers. And yet they also are inv- investing with traditional kind of guys, David Einhorn, um, who looks for stories and is a super smart guy. I was blown away by that. And their argument is, well, yeah, it worked for us at Renaissance, but there are other approaches. There, You can still make money in other ways. I thought they would kind of scoff and 
make fun of and giggle at guys like Buffett even. And they don't feel that way genuinely. So even though I came away skeptical of the traditional approach, they still hold out possibilities in some markets. Some you got to have some competitive advantage. And increasingly, it's just so hard to get this information advantage. But there are still um, approaches, be it in illiquid markets, markets where quants don't um, really focus on it. And maybe it's the less one of the lessons is try to be a little more of a longer term investor. You don't want to go up ahead, go up against renaissance day to day and they're short term. So maybe you need to be a little bit longer term as a result because they haven't really figured out longer term in investing. So that's among the, the lessons I, I drew, but also just how you manage people. I mean, to me, in some ways, the book was as much of a management book and how he's been able to get super smart, um, often cantankerous, um, difficult, stubborn people to work together and create incentives and motivate and I find that kind of fascinating and eye-opening um, in, in a lot of different ways, in surprising ways. So anyway, those are some of my own uh, observations. I got to say, as a quantumental guy, that's music to my ears. But the big takeaway for me was that just the uh, the humility was so important. As you find things, you got to expect them to break down. You just got to plan for the worst and, and hope for the best, maybe. Yeah, so people internally, I kind of ask them, you know, you guys are wealthy and you've got these returns. You just kind of go in, press the button, and you know, drink your coffee. And no, there's a, a level of urgency there and um, nervousness about the future and competing for talent. And that's part of the reason why there was a lot of uh, upheaval and, and, and fear. Um, um, there was a lot of uh, morale issues with, about politics and Bob Mercer, we suggested earlier, because they have to compete with Facebook and Google in, in terms of talent-wise. So, um, yeah, there's a level of humility, as you suggest, which surprised me. And it's genuine. Uh, it does feel that way, yeah. They're not putting on a show. They, uh, and part of it is Bob Mercer. Uh, I'm sorry, part of it is Peter Brown, who runs the firm today. And the guy's still working his tail off, and as a result, everybody else does. And yeah, even though they live in you know whatever big huge homes, and they got these returns, and they're wealthy, they're a little bit like you know a, a team, a sports team that just won the championship. They want to keep doing it the next year. And I was a little bit surprised by that. Well, I love the book, and I've really enjoyed chatting to you too, Gregory Zuckerman. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.